1: Our scripture reading is taken from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8 from the Common English Bible. With what, with what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings with year old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime? the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit. He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. The word of God for the people of God.
0: So next month, the Virginia Annual Conference will host a virtual meeting so that we can approve the final group of churches who want to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church here in Virginia. Next May in 2024, our global general conference will gather together in North Carolina. And this will be a chance for our denomination to embrace the essentials of our faith, that bind us together to the love of God and that help us be one church across a variety of cultural practices and political opinions that exist within our global membership. It'll be a chance for us to put our energy into being for something instead of arguing about what we are against to recommit to our mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And so this month, we are going to be looking at what makes our identity as a United Methodist congregation essentially bind us together with four different elements of faith. Now, some of you were born and raised Methodist, some in this very church, And some of you have come to become Methodist after being part of another Christian tradition or maybe becoming a Christian here at Central and only being Methodist for a few years as an adult. And so we're going to look at four of the pillars of our Methodist identity over the course of this month-long series called BUMC. Now, this was actually created by someone at the denominational level because they wanted people to have an opportunity to share their stories about why they follow Jesus and call the United Methodist Church their home. And so there's a chance if you go onto social media and you type in hashtag B-E-U-M-C, that you'll see all sorts of videos or written testimonies from folks who share why they follow Jesus and they call the Methodist Church home. If you have a story that you want others to see, just type it up or record a video and then make sure to add that hashtag BUMC. We call John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. He was an Anglican priest. He never wanted to start another church. He simply wanted to revive the people who were already in that Church of England and then the people who were here in America worshiping in the Anglican church. As part of this revival, he gathered people together to hear him preach in fields. And he also had a very, very clear system of discipleship. He had people commit to meet together once a week in a band, a group of three or four other people. And there was a high level of accountability in these weekly meetings. And then he had people also meet together in a class typically about 12 people in a class, so that they could study scripture together, and they could also hold one another accountable for their spiritual growth. Reverend Wesley believed that if we pursue holiness of heart, there will be clear evidence in our life. The fruit of the Spirit will be visible not only to us, but to others around us. And he believed the fruit of this discipleship would be clear in an individual and also in a group that you could see God at work. He once wrote, it is expected of all who continue to be part of the Methodist society and classes that they should continue to evidence their desire for salvation by doing good, by being in every way merciful as they have an opportunity doing good of every possible sort as far as possible to all. In many ways, those weekly gatherings of the bands and the classes functioned in a similar way that 12-step groups do today. People who struggle with addiction gather with others who may struggle with addiction to alcohol or drugs or food or sex or gambling or pornography And as they gather together, they commit to support one another in their search for sobriety and abstinence. They offer support and accountability for people who want to be freed from the bondage of addiction. Those early Methodists knew of their sin in their life, and they wanted to be freed from the bondage of sin. So they gathered together to support one another in their pursuit of salvation and holiness of heart. Our scripture lesson from the prophet Micah begins from this perspective of acknowledging our human brokenness and our need to seek healing from God. The prophet asks us, with what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime? The fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit. Micah is presenting these increasingly extravagant offerings, suggesting that we might earn or buy God's favor. He mentions all of these things, but then he quickly dismisses these extravagant gestures because he knows that God desires something more meaningful. He knows that it is not possible for us to buy or earn God's love and forgiveness. When we acknowledge our sin, when we admit that we are powerless over the sin in our life and we need a savior, this is all possible because of God's prevenient grace, the grace that goes before us, that allows us to say yes, to be freed from the bondage of sin. When we cooperate with God's grace in us, then we see the evidence of the fruit of the spirit that God is at work in our life. And so Micah tells us what is required. The Lord requires this to do justice, to embrace faithful love and walk humbly with your God. Now, the second part to embrace faithful love has been translated many ways. In some translations, we'll see the word kindness. In other places, we will see the word mercy. Sometimes we'll see the word loving kindness It is all to embody the character of God who has kindness and mercy and faithful love for us as humans. And so when we follow God, we too can embrace this sentiment. Micah challenges the prevalent belief that external religious rituals are what is sufficient to please God. He pushes us to recognize that there is more than just showing up and bringing your sin sacrifice. He, like Wesley, knew that God desires a transformation of our hearts. We believe as Methodists that when the fruit of the spirit is at work and evident in our lives, that it will then lead us to seek justice. As God's people, we work together to take action for the well-being of all. And that is why we as Methodists are God's people who seek justice. Now that word justice may conjure a few images in your mind. You might be picturing a gavel used by a judge at a sentencing. You might picture the Lady Justice statue with a blindfold. Or you might have terrible images of vigilante justice. But today, I want us to turn our attention to restorative justice. This is a model that incorporates justice, mercy, and humility, just as Micah tells us God wants to see in God's people. Restorative justice is rooted in the expectation that God's peace, God's shalom, can be experienced in this life, in this world, not just in some future world to come. Shalom expresses God's vision for a world where all people live in right relationship with God and also with their neighbors and all of creation. Our lives are an interconnected web of relationships. We start close to home with our friends, our family, our neighbors, extending out into the community our acquaintances and the people that we don't yet know but who we have a connection with because we live in the same area This is the web of the community in which we are a part. And when there is something that disrupts that shalom, it tears at the fabric of the community. And we see in scripture that biblical justice tells us it is not just about punitive uh, experiences after something happens, but it is about healing people and reconciling relationships and mending the web of relationships. This work is extremely difficult, and it is what God's people are called to do. In our United Methodist Social Principles, in the Book of Discipline, this is what our denomination says about restorative justice. In the love of Christ, who came to save those who are lost and vulnerable, we urge the creation of a genuinely new system for the care and restoration of victims, offenders, and criminal justice officials and the community as a whole. Restorative justice grows out of biblical authority, which emphasizes a right relationship with God, self, and community. When such relationships are violated or broken through crime, opportunities are created to make things right. Most criminal justice systems around the world are retributive. These justice systems profess to hold the the offender accountable to the state, and use punishment as the equalizing tool for accountability. In contrast, restorative justice seeks to hold the offender accountable to the victimized person and to the disrupted community. Through God's transforming power, restorative justice seeks to repair the damage, right or wrong, and bring healing to all involved, including the victim, the offender, the families, and the community as a whole. The church is transformed when it responds to the claims of discipleship by becoming agents of healing and systemic change. So in those two paragraphs from our book of discipline, it sums up a theme that we see throughout scripture. So many times in scripture, we see that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That description of the character of God is seen in Jesus Christ. He demonstrated this divine character in everything that he did and taught. And we have the possibility of practicing restorative justice only because God's spirit is present in us and because Christ can offer that same love and justice and mercy through us to others. God desires restorative justice because it brings about shalom, peace. And God wants us to put this into practice in our everyday lives. God longs for us to be in right relationship with each other, within our communities and with the earth. That is the ultimate goal, is to experience God's shalom. We must be wise, reconciling relationships are too often, especially in the church, used as a disguise for continued injustice. How many times has a victim of domestic violence been convinced to return home to an abuser under a simple promise that this time things will be different? A promise to change is not enough to restore a relationship. That does not encompass all that restorative justice can be. There are three principles that form the foundation of restorative justice. First, a focus on the harm that has been done to people and to communities. Second, restorative justice emphasizes offender accountability and responsibility. And third, those most directly involved and affected by a crime should have the opportunity to participate fully In the response and restorative process, if they so desire. The harm to victims and relationships in the community are given a priority that doesn't happen when you're simply focused on assigning blame and assigning punitive damages. Now, there are times when the offender needs to be held accountable. That was step two in that foundation, and we see that in scripture, in the New Testament, when Jesus visits the house of, Zachari- Z- of Zacchaeus, in the New Testament, when Jesus visits the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, this tax collector encounters the living God in Christ, and he is transformed and converted to a new way of living in this world. And in response to his encounter to God's love through Christ, he proclaims, Lord, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. Luke shows us how Zacchaeus was willing to pay reparations to those he harmed, not as a punishment, but as a way of restoring the relationship with the people that he had cheated. A way of weaving together those relationships that had broken shalom. A way of restoring himself fully as a member of the community in which he was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was transformed by God's love. He immediately saw the harm that he had caused to others. And he knew he had to do something to do justice. Now that word restorative justice might be a bit of a misnomer. We can never really truly restore what was. So maybe we should be calling this transformative justice instead. There's a lawyer who actually is a practitioner of, just, of this restorative justice. Fanya Davis wrote this. She said, it's not about returning to the pre-conflict status quo, but about returning to one's best self that's always been there. When well-facilitated restorative justice processes create the possibility for transformation of people, relationships, and community. This is often a radical departure from the pre-conflict status quo. So what are we restoring? For me, it's about restoring the part of us that really wants to be connected to one another in a good way. One might say it's about returning to the divinity present in all of us. Now, I don't know what Ms. Davis's faith is like today, but I know that as a child, she grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and was a member of a congregation in 1963 that was a victim of a bombing where two of her Sunday school friends were killed. And I know that she, at seven years old, was a member of another church, the first congregational church that was burned to the ground because of an interracial discussion group at that congregation. It would be easy for someone like her to have those terrible experiences as a child and to be angry at perpetrators and want vengeance. But instead, those experiences formed her belief in the power of transformation, not to transform to the status quo with injustices like segregation, but to transform into a new reality that better reflects the divine shalom. So you might be wondering, well, what does restorative justice have to do with me? I don't work in this field. It doesn't feel close to home. Maybe you'll see the connection if we go back to the early days of Methodism, to those bands and those classes where Wesley encouraged people to ask one another, what known sins have you committed since our last meeting? It's a chance to offer reflection, to acknowledge the places where we have broken the web of Shalom maybe close to home in our families, or it might be simply sinning against God in some way. But the expectation in those groups was that they would acknowledge the sin as the first way of restoring the relationship between God and God's people and between one another as humans. There's a similar practice today in the 12-step groups. There are very defined ways of naming the harm, of making a list of all the people that you may have harmed, and being willing to make amends to all of them. And then there's a very specific step about making direct amends to people. You don't need to be part of a 12-step group or part of a Wesleyan band to ask yourself those reflection questions. Is there someone in your life who you may have harmed recently or long ago who God might want you to reach out to to make amends? Or maybe God wants you to be ready for when you answer the phone and it's someone that has harmed you. Someone who is seeking forgiveness and mercy and restoration of relationship. It will be your opportunity to be a participant in transformative justice when you offer mercy to someone else. The prophet Micah connected justice and mercy and humility And we cannot practice justice without mercy and humility. I leave you this morning with the poem from the poet Annalisa. She composed this poem called Justice and Mercy. Oh, here comes justice, waiting for mercy to catch up. He is holding out his hand to her, smiling, his back ramrod straight. And stooped, Mercy is climbing the hill behind him. Her back is bent, knees almost given out. From the time spent kneeling by bedsides and on the side of the road with the destitute. But justice always waits for Mercy to catch up. He will not arrive anywhere without her in his wake. She being the one to wipe tears and hold hands and restore the small flame of hope in people's hearts. Justice is an earthquake, the people hear coming, and mercy, so discreet, they don't always know when she's made her entrance. She will sweep the floor of shattered glass, make up beds, offer sweet tea. She will take the children in her arms, read them a story. And when justice is spent, leaving his upheaval behind him, mercy will be the nurse who disinfects and gently tends fresh wounds. People remember justice for his entrance, but mercy will be the presence that remains. Long after she has hobbled up behind his bright flame lighting the hill, that even on departing she is turning, smiling, and waving her handkerchief, still damp from tears, and she is taking justice's hand, for even justice, without the shape of mercy at his side, is no longer righteous. So he waits for her, knowing in her backpack are carried the seeds of restoration, the redemptive grace that completes the holy work of change.
1: Thanks be to God. Amen.